Okay, I will kick this off. Dying is not easy. It is an intensely <clears throat> emotional experience. There's often pain, uh, not only the physical pain, but also spiritual, spiritually, psychologically, and even socially because of the isolation that sometimes goes with this experience. So Th Sir Thomas Brown is... Uh, an author, and he is, <clears throat> he wrote this uh, medical literature classic <clears throat> entitled Religio Medici or the Religion of a Physician, and where he reflected on his faith and his practice of medicine, especially focusing on issues like faith, hope, and love. And this is what he had to say With what strife and pains we come into this world, we know not. But it's commonly no easy matter to get out of it. And that is true, isn't it? Because of the pain and the fear of death, sometimes we reflexly avoid talking about this. And in some of our cultures, and maybe some of you even here, may feel that talking about death, especially with your parents or with your older uh, relatives, may be seen as taboo, bad luck. According to a study commissioned by the Lien Foundation here in Singapore, only half of Singaporeans have actually talked to their loved ones about dying. And among those who are more than 60 years old, even less, around 40%. So I hope at the end of this session, you know, we would change that statistic for PBH, right? that you go back and you begin these conversations and we will tell you how you can begin this very, very meaningful conversations with your parents because it is well known among the medical fraternity that discussions about living, about dying between patients and their families are critical towards providing compassionate and quality care near the end of life. When we avoid having these dialogues, we find ourselves unprepared to handle the challenges associated with dying, whether that of our own or our loved ones. So that's why we are talking about dying today. Because these dialogues will help us live more meaningfully, help us prepare to help others in their time of need, and when our own time comes, to leave this earth peacefully. I want to introduce you to this remarkable woman. She, is, she was, in her lifetime, a nurse who became a medical social worker who became a doctor. And she is well known for starting the modern hospice movement. She established the first purpose-built hospice to meet the needs, the physical needs, the social needs, the psychological and spiritual needs of the dying and their families. She was also a Christian, very committed to serving God, and this was the way she served God. And she saw dying not as something to be feared, but as a spiritual event that can bring meaning to life. And an event and a time that can bring opportunity for reconciliation. Reconciliation with one another, reconciliation with God. And she defines good death as one in which the body becomes weaker, but the spirit becomes stronger. 
echoing 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is renewed day by day. <clears throat> you see, the last phase of life is not really about dying, but about living to the fullest in the midst of our pain and suffering. So it is possible for our spirit at that time to grow stronger even as our physical body weakens. It can be a time of profound meaning and growth for both the person who is dying as well as for family members or friends taking care of them. The inner spirit in us can be renewed day by day in the midst of pain and suffering in the outer man. And this is, I think, what dying is all about. So we will consider this topic of dying well in two parts. Ben will take on the first part and he will share his experience caring for patients who are dying and what he has learned from them about living fully and what it means to him and to us about being there for patients in that time or with our friends. Then in the second part, I will take a step back and I will discuss how we can live fully, how we can make the most of the time, how we can live wisely so that we can die well. And I'll focus our thoughts this uh, afternoon now uh, on Psalm 90, all right? And we will go through uh, that psalm together. So before I ask Ben to come up, and this is the part where uh, <laughs> uh, Pastor uh, was mentioning, um, just a few things about Ben that maybe you do not know about, right? <clears throat> well, uh, Ben is an excellent doctor. He is a teacher as well in uh, NUH now. And he has chosen to specialize in this field of medicine called palliative medicine, which is a branch of medicine that specializes in caring for the dying. Now, when I first heard him uh, tell me that he wanted to specialize in that, my jaw dropped because it is a very, very difficult field of medicine to get into. I mean, you can imagine, right? I mean, all your patients are going to die. And I think it is a very intensely emotional uh, kind of a, a situation where you find yourselves being uh, in, uh, day in, day out. And I think it takes a bit of emotional strength and to have yourself ready and prepared uh, before you can embark on a career like that. But, you know, as I reflected over this now, I think Ben is really suited for uh, doing something like this because basically he is a very, very caring person. He has a big, big heart. And uh, I'm, as, as a father, as a father and as parents, my wife is not here, we cannot be more proud uh, of him and what, for what he has become. But I have to say this because I want you to be proud of him as well because uh, he is really, you know, thoroughbred PPH, right? He grew up here, and this is the part. He went to kindergarten here. <laughs> so, Joanne, this is a call-out for PPH kindergarten. You know, why are we not sending our children to our PPH kindergarten when you can produce people like Ben, right? <laughs> That's the best advertisement, all right. 
Um, but he grew up here, really, right? He went to Sunday school here. He went to uh, youth here, young adults here. And he's uh, now married here, raising a family here. So really, he's PPH. And you have sought so much into his life. And I take this opportunity to thank you, all of you, as a community of into his life, and I hope uh, you are proud of him as well. So Ben, please come talk to us. Thanks, Daddy. <laughs> so, um, yeah, good morning to everybody. Uh, good afternoon to everybody here today. Um, I'm actually very thankful. I think uh, it's been a very um, good opportunity for me to share about something that's very close to to my heart. So I wanted to start with the story of um, with the story of Stephen. So this is uh, Stephen Giam. I think some of y'all may have seen his story on uh, Facebook or The Straits Times or Yahoo or something like that recently. Uh, basically, Stephen was a patient who fairly recently was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer of the bowel ducts. So he, uh, after being diagnosed with cancer, he actually filmed a series of YouTube videos and he put them online. Uh, those of you who are interested can go and search under the YouTube username, uh, Stephen Says. Stephen Says, right? So um, basically, he recorded this series of videos where he called himself um, a death coach. And he shared his experiences uh, being diagnosed with cancer and what he felt, what he experienced. And basically, he hoped that his experiences could increase the awareness and reduce the stigma around issues uh, surrounding death and dying. So I wanted to use uh, Stephen's um, experience, what he went through, to illustrate just a little bit about the experience of someone who is dying and who's faced with him, his impending death. So Stephen grew up in a single-parent family. Uh, his vo his uh, life sounds like it could have come out of a drama serial. He, um, he dropped out of school at 15, one year before he finished his O-levels. Uh, he worked at A&W. You know, last time there was A&W. Um, he actually did really well, and uh, although he was something like 15, 16 at the time, he was promoted within six months to, I think, uh, one of the youngest ever supervisors because he was a very streetwise type of person, so he did well in whatever he, he did practically. La. So um, during his NS, he actually served in the police force. I think some of, some of us served in the police force. Yeah, so um, he, he also did really well, and he, um, he enjoyed it so much, he actually intended to sign on with the police force. But um, at that point in time, uh, he was apparently turned down by the police force because of his lack of qualifications. He didn't even have O-levels at that point in time. So um, that was a point where he... That was a turning point in his life. I think uh, he thought to himself, uh, I really need to turn my life around. And uh, he basically decided to, to change everything. He went on a fast track to complete his O-levels after that. After that, he did a diploma in marketing, then a degree, then a master's. Oh, and he completed everything actually before the age of 28. And um, this was all while um, working part-time to support himself through his education. So uh, subsequently, he actually worked in various lines before eventually uh, setting up his own company. So it was called Step Up International. It was a retail and trade marketing consultancy firm. Uh, basically, he, he also got married. He became a father to four children. And his job allowed him to travel all around the world now. So a lot of people would feel he had the, you know, he had a fairy tale life. He had a uh, perfect ending to his story. But um, the story changed in uh, December last year. 
he started to feel some tummy pain. Uh, he noticed that the, his skin and his eyes started to have a yellow color to them. And after he went to see a few doctors, he had a scan, a scope, and one uh, major surgery as well. Uh, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer of the bowel ducts. So uh, he was given just one year to live at that point in time, uh, even with chemotherapy and all that. So I'd like to bring us into the head and in the heart of someone who's abruptly confronted with his own impending death. So Stephen's story is of someone who's very much a self-made man, right? So he essentially struggled um, to succeed despite his own humble beginnings and starting with almost nothing. But um, he now, within the, the short span of a few weeks, he was essentially faced with losing everything. He, he knew that you know, his savings were going to be drained by all the medical expenses. Uh, he knew that his condition was going to get worse, so he was going to lose his indep independence, his ability to care for himself. But perhaps most importantly, he was faced with the fact that he knew he was going to die eventually. And, um, meaning that everything that he had struggled to build with his two hands you know, would soon amount to essentially nothing. So he was someone who had always succeeded on his own strength, right? But uh, now, to have this kind of control wrested from him in, in a short span of a few weeks, I, I felt it was something like, you know, a plane whose wings had suddenly fallen off and is going to crash, or, a sh or uh, the captain of a ship who, that has suddenly started to sink. You know, he, he... I think, and when you add this on to the, the physical pain that he was experiencing at the time, we begin to just understand just the tip of an iceberg of suffering that he had run into. I, I think it's like an iceberg, you know, because um, although we, we feel like he was having a hard time, you know, the, it was probably a whole lot more than that. And what we see is just like the tip of an iceberg and underneath there was so much more. You know, the questions that um, would have been running through his mind, as you can imagine, would be questions like, um, why me? You know, what, what did I do to deserve this? Uh, does anybody really understand me? Um, how much more pain am I going to have to undergo? You know, and what's waiting for me on the other side after I die? And some of these questions um, are really questions with, without any good answers to. So, you know, the pain that people experience at the end of their lives is a pain that is very, very real. Uh, physical suffering is one part of it. But modern medicine has probably come to a point where, you know, we have very good treatment options for physical suffering. In, in the hospital where I'm working now today, I can tell patients fairly confidently, actually, that um, we can make sure that you are physically comfortable until the end of your life. But the other aspects of pain and suffering are often much more difficult to address. You know, in pain and uh, in suffering, in, in palliative care, sorry, there is this concept known as uh, total pain. So total pain means that at the end of life, a patient's uh, emotional and spiritual and social distress also contribute in a very real way to their suffering. At a point where someone hears or suddenly realizes that he or she is dying, um, it's often as if their entire life suddenly comes to the fore in front of them. You know, everything that they achieved, every relationship that was built and destroyed, uh, every, every hurt in their lives often comes uh, to them in a very real way. And more often than not, uh, any distress that they undergo at this stage has its roots in uh, interpersonal relationships, you know. Something that was left unsaid, something that was uh, a hurt that was left unresolved, or a wrong that was left unforgiven. 
And for someone to die well, uh, these other needs have to be met as well. And those who are dying aren't the only ones who suffer in such a situation. You know, many of us here, uh, some of us may have experienced the pain of losing a loved one. And uh, for all of you, my heart really goes out because um, working in this line has allowed me to appreciate a little bit of the pain and the suffering and how deep it can go in those situations. I think when someone is dying, uh, often it's the family members who suffer the most. Um, you know, all this, the same hows and the whys that we talked about earlier uh, all still apply. You know, they will all still be running through our minds. But plus, these other thoughts will also apply. Um, we may ask ourselves, you know, could I have done something to prevent this? Uh, why didn't I spend more time with the person when he or she was well? And why, why am I not getting a chance to say goodbye? So when it comes to ministering to patients and their families, um, it's important for us to note that uh, everybody's experience of suffering is different. Uh, I think based on this uh, total pain concept, every person's suffering is a unique experience that I think is born out of an interplay between their personality, their spirituality and their circumstances as well. Unfortunately, because of this, there are often no right things to say that, um, to someone who is suffering. If I were to, let's say I, I'm, I'm going to take on the role of someone who is um, just diagnosed with cancer and who's learned that I only have a year to live. Uh, I, I just want to give a few examples of how something can be said that is actually right but will sound very wrong to me. So just as an example, uh, you could tell me that um, I, I understand uh, things are very difficult for you now. But I would just think, uh, no, you don't. Uh, how could you understand? And... Um, you could tell me, um, God can heal, right? God can heal. And I would just think to myself, um, but what if he doesn't? And what if he doesn't? Or you could say to me, um, things will be perfect again in heaven. But I would just think to myself, um, but that doesn't change the pain that I'm going through right now. And um, worse, I mean, uh, if I hear all that and I feel all that, I may start to even question my own faith. Because I start to wonder how come, how come I find myself not buying any of these things which people are telling me. So that being the case, uh, what can we do right, in such situations if we have a friend whose uh, relative is diagnosed with cancer, who's about to uh, pass on, or even if we have a friend who's going through a difficult time diagnosed with a serious illness. So I think we need to meet these individuals uh, where they are rather than applying a template in terms of what to say or do. Right, so I, I think before saying anything to them, it starts with listening first. Right? So uh, I think it starts with, um, tell me about how you are feeling today. Or tell me how I can pray for you today. Uh, share with me a little bit about what you are going through and what are the thoughts running through your head. And I think that when we take the time to listen, we dem demonstrate that we care, uh, even if we don't have all the answers. And often I think there are no easy answers. But these uh, for these people, their pain is made just that little bit better when they know that they aren't alone and when they know that there's somebody praying for them. Sometimes the other thing about walking alongside people who are suffering, I think we need to address our own hearts as well, our own fear of uh, negative emotions. So I want to give the example of someone who uh, we're talking to uh, them about their pain and something like that and they start to cry. Uh, often our instinctive response is to tell them um, uh, don't cry, don't cry and to give them uh, maybe some tissue or something like that 
But remember that, that you know, for somebody who's in pain, it is okay to cry. It's perfectly okay to cry. And it's natural for them to feel that way. Um, it's even good for them to express it in this way. And sometimes when we tell someone, don't cry, it's akin to telling them, um, you shouldn't be feeling this way. Right? And we never want to come across that way. Lah. So, similarly for those of us who are talking to someone who's suffering, sometimes they may tell us thoughts or feelings that may seem ungodly. Right? They may tell us, um, well, I, I, you know, I feel that God doesn't care about me anymore. Or I feel that, um, I, feel that uh, I just want to, you know, I just want to end it all. I just want to end my life. Um, in such situations, you know, it, it may be, a, it may be a tempting to tell them similarly, don't feel that way. Lah. Don't feel that way. Or, um, or tell them, no, 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 no. These, are, these are from the devil. You know, I cast it out or something like that. Right? But um, instead, I think that something that's more helpful would be to ask them a bit further. Tell me about why you're feeling that way. And, and, and to meet them at the point where they are and to share with them and to pray with them at that point. So, you know, back to the story of uh, Stephen, uh, the one we talked about earlier. Uh, when I first met him, I was on an attachment with the hospital palliative care team. He was very open in sharing his thoughts with us, and um, he told us that he was, going, he was planning to write a book of his own experiences, and he said that um, the book's title is going to be, I am dying, so are you. <laughs> so, um, so, I think you all know where he's coming from, right? So, um, unfortunately... Unfortunately, to the sec- towards the second half of this year, uh, his condition took a turn for the worse. Uh, and in fact, I, I had been covering the ICU uh, at that point in time, and I saw him in the ICU. He basically developed a series of bad infections because of his blocked bowel ducts. And um, he, went, uh, he went to the ICU for that reason. So knowing that time was probably shorter than what was originally um, thought, he, he was telling us at that point in time that, uh, I, uh, I think my book is going to have to become a booklet. So, but um, still, working against time and during the short periods where he felt he had the energy, he, um, he filmed this series of videos. So he was literally, um, if some of us have seen the videos, he was literally filming them in selfie style uh, from his hospital bed, most of them. So it's just short, like, like one, two minute videos talking about various topics uh, that he was going through. And after he passed on recently, about a couple of months back, uh, his story was actually, he, I mean, you could actually say his story went viral. He's, it was uh, published first on the National Cancer Institute of Singapore website, then on Yahoo News, I think, then uh, eventually on the Straits Times as well. So in many ways, I think Stephen succeeded in his goal of making his voice better heard for better awareness of uh, end-of-life issues. I think Stephen's story is very much an example of a bad situation that was made good. Uh, how he found meaning in the worst of his circumstances at the end of his life. Uh, unfortunately, many of us only realize what is really important at that point towards the end of our lives. And um, often we are left playing catch up. You know, we suddenly realize that, Chucks, uh, I should have given more priority to this or that. And we start to struggle to do that. And that's why I think uh, dying well is really not about the dying, right? It's really about living and living our lives to the fullest, the lives that Jesus came for us to have. And um, I think living this, 
this living life to the fullest is when we live our lives with the realization that our time on earth is short. And uh, this drives us to put our heart and soul into what really matters. And for us, you know, the advantage we have, I think, is that what matters is actually very clear. And that's to be loved by God, to love Him, and to, to do the work that He has called us to do. So at this point in time, very quickly, uh, I just want to introduce a concept called uh, Advanced Care Planning, ACP lah, for short. So uh, I think probably most of us, I think in this congregation, have, might not have heard about it. ACP, so, you know, a lot of the things we've talked about today about dying, for this, a lot of us in this particular age group, we may think, uh, uh, what has this got to do with me? You know, it's not important. So, advanced care planning, ACP, is a mode of talking about one's healthcare preferences. That means if something were to happen to me in the future, uh, what are the, what's the way that I want to be treated and what is important to me? Because I can tell you all that uh, these things actually make whole lot of difference when it comes to the doctors who are treating us at that stage of our lives. The, the thinking is that, you know, if one day I were to become unable to talk, unable to speak for myself, then um, who is going to reflect what's important to me to the doctors and nurses, right? So, uh, ACP uh, is this voluntary process of ongoing discussion about our healthcare preferences. Uh, it involves us, the individuals, talking to those people that we love about it. So it can be uh, for everybody. So, you know, so I was saying that, that you know, some of us, it may not, may not seem to make much sense, but I was recently talking to one of the ACP people about this, and we were saying, you know, what age should you start to talk about ACP? And basically, they were saying that, um, I think, uh, after PSLE. It's after PSLE, right? So, so I think most of us here will fit, fit into this category, right? So, but the point, is that, the point is that it's never too early to start talking about this because there are a lot of advantages about it, which I will, I will talk about later as well. Uh, basically, you know, um, okay, so just very quickly, I'm going to run through the process. So basically, we just think about it, think about it, think about what's important to us and what really matters to us, talk about it with our loved ones. Then there is a workbook where we can record down some of these things according to a certain structure. And then after that, we can review these things regularly. So none of this is set in stone. It's about talking to about what's important to you at this point of your life, right? So uh, it can always be changed and it can always uh, be reviewed later as well. For us, you know, I think these conversations help us to evaluate uh, if we are living our lives according to what we really feel is important and if necessary to realign ourselves to that. For our family members, for our loved ones, you know, knowing what is important to them will also enable us to care for them better if one day they become sick. So, um, if, if those of us who are interested to see a little bit more, uh, there is a website. Lah. There's a website called www.livingmatters.sg. So, there's even an online version of the ACP where you can go to the website and you can click on the according to the question format and then after that, they can record it all down for you. So, just very quickly, right? if I show you all the ACP booklet, this is the hard copy one, lah, that, which there's a PDF version online also on the website. So, it goes something like that. Um, Basically, it talks about preferences, what, what is important to you. The next part basically talks about if I were, one day I were to become sick, what are the things I'm worried about? What are my fears? What, am I, uh, what do I want for myself in that kind of situation? So I just wanted to go through this very quickly. Now, just as I'm coming to the end of what I wanted to uh, share with you, uh, I just wanted to add this part, which is, um, you know, for us, I think to talk about dying without a pension of heaven 
is like a story that's missing its final chapter. I think in eternity, we will uh, find all of the answers that we can't really find here on earth. And it is the single place where I think all of the brokenness that we see on earth will be made beautiful again. One of the, I just wanted to share one of the struggles I had in practicing medicine. And this struggle was actually regarding God's victory over sickness and death, right? Because I knew in my head, as many of us know, that you know, God loves us, God, God is a God who has victory over sickness, victory over death. But I struggled to reconcile this with uh, what I saw when I came to work every day. You know, I saw all of these patients and they were sick and they, some of them were dying. And many of these patients, actually, they would tell me, uh, actually, I'm a Christian, you know. I'm a Christian and I'm praying for a miracle and I'm praying to get well. And uh, many times I would be praying for my patients as well. But often the healing never really happened and they still went on to pass on after that. And because of that, I ended up with, I had no answers to the questions which, you know, sometimes people struggle with. Questions like, um, why do bad things happen to good people? Questions like, um, how does God's love feature when there's this 18-year-old boy who's diagnosed with a blood cancer and who goes on to pass on before he even gets a chance to live his life? But I think as I continue to practice, and somehow also when I was preparing for this uh, this, this sharing here, uh, God began to uh, bring a measure of peace in my heart. And the peace was something like this. I think He began to show me that His victory over sickness and death is still very real and still applies in a very real way. But this victory is going to be made complete and perfect in heaven. And so, you know, now I suppose to, as you all know now, I, I decided kind of palliative care where all the patients are suffering, where all the patients are going to die. But when I see this now, although I still feel all this ugliness very acutely, it just makes heaven that much more beautiful to me. You know, and uh, everything, every, every ounce of suffering that I see is something that makes the picture of heaven more beautiful in my heart. So to conclude this segment, I believe that there is no dying well without Jesus. And dying well is really also not about dying, right? It's about living. And if there's one central message that we're going to convey today, I think it's that. And living uh, lives to the fullest, you know, living the lives that God has called us to for the things that really matter. So with that, I'll pass the time back to my dad. Thanks, Ben. So what really matters in our lives? I want to now at this point uh, get you to turn to your Bibles, to Psalm 90. Keep it there because we are going to go through this uh, quite closely. Psalm 90, reading from verse 1. This is a prayer of Moses, a man of God. Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. 
For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger or your and your wrath according to the fear of you. And this is the key lesson of Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days. See, this is what Moses says. So, in view of all that we have talked about in verses 1 to 11, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. And let the favour of the Lord be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. <clears throat> so Psalm 90 highlights three aspects of our life. First, life is temporal. We are not going to be here on this earth forever. Verse 3, you return man to dust. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. Second thing, life is short. We will not be here for long. We are like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, we flourish and we are renewed. And then in the evening, we fade away and we wither. The years of our life are just 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. They are soon gone and we fly away. And the third thing about life that we learn is that life is troublesome. right? And Moses highlights two troubles of our life. First, our sin. Our sin in the face of the wrath of God. We are brought to an end by your anger, verse 7. By your wrath, we are dismayed. Verse 8, you have set our sins, our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. The other trouble with life is that it is, there are troubles associated with living. Verse 10, their span is but toil and trouble. Work is burdensome and there is pain and suffering that we all have to go through, that we all experience in the course of our lives. And so in view of all this, in view of our mortality, in view of life is short and temporal and troublesome, the key lesson therefore is to number our days. What does that mean? To number our days is for us to live in such a way that we are mindful of our mortality, 
to be mindful that life is short, life is temporal, life is troublesome. And when we are mindful of this, and when we live mindfully like this, Moses says that we will gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, mindfulness spurs us to live wisely. I like this quote by Neville Ward, the Methodist minister. He has this to say about death. Death helps us see what is worth trusting and loving and what is a waste of time. So really, our mindfulness of mortality, of our own mortality, must spur us to make the most of the time, to live for what truly matters in our life. Because being mindful of mortality makes life more precious. It spurs us to make the most of the time. And I think that is wisdom. So what is it that should matter the most in our lives? And in one word, it must be God. And that is the call of Psalm 90. That we make God our eternal home. That's verse 1. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. What does it mean for us to make God our home? Home, all of us know, is where our heart is, isn't it? The home is the place of our affections, the place of our hopes and dreams, where our aspirations reside. So therefore, the call to make God our home is a call to really place our ultimate affection, hope and dreams on God and not on this earth. So in light of our mortality then, where life is temporal, where it's short and where it's troublesome, we therefore turn to God and we put our hope in God and we live fully for Him. Because in God, our mortality will be transformed to become immortality because He is God eternal. He is the God from everlasting to everlasting. And in God, our sins can be forgiven through Jesus so that now we no longer have to deal with the wrath of God. Instead, we find love and we find peace. In God, we can experience peace even in the midst of our troubles because even though we may not have all the answers, in God, we have hope that one day, all this brokenness has been shared with us. All that we experience and all that we see will be made whole again. So we put our hope in God and we live fully in God. How do we do that? I summarize this and I think this is what we can learn from this psalm uh, by Moses. is to live a life of love. It begins with a daily experience of God's love. Love is experienced daily. Moses asked God to satisfy us every morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And I believe this is the key to the renewal and the strengthening of our inner man, of our spirit, that we grow deeper in our experience of God's love. This is what will help us overcome the troubles of our lives. This is what will turn our mourning into dancing. This is what's going to clothe us with gladness instead of sackcloth. We daily experience the witness of God's Spirit in us that we 
are children of God, loved by the Heavenly Father. So that is why we do our quiet time every morning. That is why we come before God to start the day by reflecting on His love. And then we respond to God's love with grateful thanks. Our gratitude, the gratitude in our hearts, then prepares us to experience God's love in deeper ways throughout the day. Makes us more thankful and sensitive to all the many and varied ways by which God will show His love for us through the day. The beautiful sunrise that we see if we wake up early enough. The beauty of creation, the strength and the grace that God gives to us to do our work, the family, the friends, the community, the friendships, the relationships that we have, that we enjoy, that we can celebrate. All these things are expressions of God's love for us. There's a lot of interest nowadays to live mindfully. Some of you would know this, right? Mindfulness means to be present and to be mindful of the present, living in the moment. And there is good data in the medical literature to support the use of this practice, mindfulness, to enhance mental health and performance. But for me, spiritually, what is even more powerful is that we become mindful of God's love towards us daily. Secular mindfulness benefits mental health, but spiritual mindfulness of God's love benefits spiritual health. And that is how we grow from strength to strength in our inner man. So begin each morning with God's love. Live in the awareness of God's love throughout the day. And then end the day with God's love. Flowing from that experience of God's love and gratitude in our hearts, we then serve Him. We live fully for God. We gladly, as Moses says, become His servants this is the natural response of a heart that has truly been touched by God's love. Love is expressed in service. And a great example of this is Jennifer Hing's life, isn't it? Those of you who were here last week, you have heard of her inspiring story, how God lifted her up from this valley of despondency to this heights of delight. And how following that, in response to that, then she wanted to commit her life to serve God. Moses knew well the heart of God. Moses knows that God has chosen to do His work on earth through human agencies, through people like us, even, God, even though God doesn't really need to do so. I mean, after all, He is the God who brought forth the mountains, who formed the earth and the world, all this done without our help. But God desires to do His work through us, His servants, why? So that He may show His glory and His power to us for our benefit. And that is why Moses prayed that God would show your work to your servants and your glorious power to their children. God desires to establish the work of our hands. Why? As an affirmation of His love towards us. Love is affirmed tangibly by God. Moses prayed two times for God to establish the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands as a testimony of God's favour and love 
towards us. Again, the testimony of Jennifer Hing's life is such an encouragement. God, as God is establishing the work of her hands in a way that all of us as a community of faith and a church knows and can see God at work in her life. God showing her love. God demonstrating His power. God demonstrating His glory in the work that He is establishing through her. Because Jennifer, by herself, cannot and would not have accomplished all that she had shared with us last week. So these three aspects of living a life of love are interconnected. And this is how we are to live in a way that will make our lives matter, as it were. We begin with experiencing God's love. We respond by serving Him. And then we stand back and we watch the demonstration of God's power and God's love and God's glory through us. And this, in these three aspects, virtuous cycle that leads us right into the heart of God's love. And it is there, when we cite ourselves there, when we make God our home, that is the prayer, that is the call of someone. Oh Lord, you have been our home, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. When we cite our lives there, we make God our home. Our mortality will be transformed into immortality and there will no longer be any fear of death. The outer self may waste away, but the inner self will be renewed and you will be strengthened by God's love, firm in the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ. When we cite our lives there, there may be questions. Questions may be there, but God now changes us, turns us from asking the why to the who. When we see God and when we experience His heart of love, these questions that we have, the whys of suffering become, will diminish and they become, and we can, and those questions are replaced by peace. So our mortality drives us to put our hope in God, to live fully for Him, because that is what truly matters. And we do that by living a life of love that leads us right into the heart of God. And in that place, we experience love and peace that will strengthen faith and hope. Living a life of love also means leaving a legacy of love, especially to those closest to us. Ira Bjork is a palliative physician who has cared for countless patients during their final stages of life. And he wrote a book, The Four Things That Matter Most. And he shares what he has learned from his patients. And it's always this, that when life hangs in the balance, what's foremost in our minds at that point in time always involve the people we love and those who mean the most to us. The relationships we have with the people who are closest to us matter a lot. And Dr. Bjork has condensed into just four sentences, just 11 words, the core wisdom of what people who are dying have taught him about how we can celebrate and complete our relationships 
so that we can leave a legacy of love. And these four statements are these. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. And I love you. These four sentences help us in our relationships with those around us. Draw us closer to them. To them. Because this is really the core of what healthy relationships are about. They are about a celebration of gratitude, of forgiveness, of love. And these four sentences that we say to one another, to those who are closest to us, help us connect deeper with people who mean the most to us. I think they're very simple sentences, but not so easy to say, isn't it? Sometimes we feel awkward because we assume people should know. I mean, my loved one knows I know, uh, that, that uh, should know that I love them. Surely they must know. But Ira Bjork advises, when you love someone, it is never too soon to say I love you or premature to say thank you and to ask for forgiveness. Don't need to wait till the end to do it. So if you have not expressed love and gratitude to the people who are most important to you, do that today, over dinner, in addition to doing the ACP with them. <laughs> That's some dinner conversation for a first time, right? Don't assume that they should know. Life is fragile. All of us, we are only a heartbeat away from death. But sometimes the most difficult sentences, a difficult sentence to say is to seek forgive, for forgiveness and to forgive. The deepest hurts are often with those closest to us. Because the deeper the love, the deeper the hurt. No family is perfect. But there are families that leave a legacy of unhealthy and damaging emotional patterns down the generations. Instead of leaving a legacy of love, they blindly pass down these destructive emotional behaviours. Parents treat a child in such a way that it creates a lot of hurt, a lot of uh, bitterness that are unresolved. The this child subconsciously carries that hurt, that bitterness throughout her life. And that changes the way in which the child deals with the world in such a way that perpetuates these, this legacy down to their children, to their families in future. Forgiveness is the only way to break that legacy. Because only through forgiveness can we experience healing and, over, and become whole again. And only when we are whole ourselves can we connect with others in a healthy way. I like this quote by Ira Bjork. Forgiveness is a passage to a sanctuary of wholeness, that nurturing place where we feel intimately connected to people who matter most to us. It is that place of healing and transformation. Who of us here does not wish to experience this kind of relationship with our loved ones and those closest to us. So release any hurt that is blocking you from enjoying and celebrating this kind of relationship. Life is too short for you to hang on to these things. I started by saying that dying is not easy, and for most of us, it's a bit scary. But we can face death with fortitude and with faith rather than fear. 
when we put our hope in God, when we anchor our lives in God's love, and when we serve Him wholeheartedly, leaving a legacy of love to those closest to us. I think this is what it means to really live for what truly matters. Ben started with the story of Stephen Giam. I will share another story with you about a young man. Because I want us to try and get into a place where we want to be there to help others who are going through such an experience. Because doing so is one of the most powerful expressions of the kind of compassion and love that God wants us to show to one another. And because there is potential in that final phase of life for profound meaning and transformation that we can help facilitate in somebody else's life. And because when we walk through with somebody during that last stage of life, we ourselves get transformed and we find renewed meaning and purpose for our own lives. This is the story of David Tasma. He was a Polish Jew who fled the Warsaw Ghetto soon after World War II. And so he found himself alone in London as a refugee. He worked as a waiter, saved some money, but before he could really enjoy the fruits of his labour, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He was less than 40 years old. He was alone and in a new place. And so he was admitted to a London hospital during the last weeks of his life. And it was there that he met Cicely Saunders, who was working at that time as a medical social worker. They developed a close relationship and a close friendship during the last weeks of his life. Cicely visited him often, comforted him by reciting Bible passages to him from memory, including Psalm 23. They also discussed how patients who were dying could receive better overall care, not only physical pain management, but care holistically. And it was there, those discussions that led to the concept of building a home, a hospice dedicated to the care of the dying, holistic care of the dying. That was where it was birthed. David wrote a poem before he died. And I think I want to read this poem because it helps us get into the mind and the heart of somebody going through a situation like this. Only 40 years, he says, no one to leave. Nothing done for good or ill for the world to remember. A leaf floats down the river and is lost forever. No trace left behind. Someone comes to listen. I find I have something to say. I remember a child in Warsaw, the rabbi, my grandfather, calls me down from bed, makes me talk far into the night, search out the ways of God. Somehow, in the years between, I lost all thoughts of God and I never found myself. In the busy world, I come to the end of life. I find a friend who offers mind and heart. A window opens and gently the God of my fathers calls me home. Now only I begin. So I will leave a window. Who will look through it and find there his own starting point? It was David who inspired Cecily to dedicate her life 
to caring for the dying. He left her all the money he had, 500 pounds, so that, in his words, he can be a window in her home that she was going to build, dedicated to the care of the dying. After David Tasma's death, Cecily Saunders went to medical school, became a doctor at the age of 39. So there's hope for all of us here, right? <laughs> then went on to establish St. Christopher's Hospice in 1967, dedicated to the holistic care of the dying, where her motto, you matter because you are you, just simply because you are you, because you are precious, you are created by God, right? And you matter until the last moment of your life. And we will do all we can, not only to help you die peacefully, but also to help you live until you die. This remains one of the key tenets of modern palliative care. See the impact of David Tasman's life on all of us, right? She dedicated a window in St. Christopher's to David's memory. And she herself had this to say about David. It took me 19 years to build a home around that window. The core principles of our approach were born out of my conversations with him as he was dying. This is meaning to life. This is what we can facilitate meaning and purpose in someone who is dying. Today, St. Christopher welcomes 6,000 patients and trains 50,000 healthcare workers every year. And Cecily Saunders is credited as being the pioneer of modern hospice movement. There are many David Tasmas in this world. There are going to be many David Tasmas in Singapore as we age, as we grow older, who will die alone. And there is a little bit of David Tasma in all of us. Because at the end of our lives, we may look back and we may wonder, what have we done? And we may feel that nothing good or ill. And we feel insignificant, like a leaf floating down the river to be lost in the vastness of the sea forever. So the message for us this morning, therefore, is live fully for what truly matters with the time that you have been given. Put your hope in God. Serve Him wholeheartedly. Live a life of love and then leave a legacy of love. And then see how He will use that life and what you have put in and transform that into something so beautiful and so significant, like what he did with David Tasman's life. And the challenge then for us is this. Can we be like Cicely Saunders? Just to offer mind and heart, just to offer our presence, just to offer our listening ear. As a friend, to be present with someone in the midst of their pain and suffering. And hopefully to open up that window in their souls so that they can begin to make that journey back home to God, their Creator. And who knows what meaning and purpose that may bring to our own lives as David Tasma brought to Sicily Saunders. Let us pray together. <clears throat> Thank you.
I just like to pause at this time and just focus on the word peace. And I just want to pray now, firstly, for those who have yet to experience the peace of sins forgiven by God through Jesus Christ. In Psalm 90, Moses lamented how our sins evoke the wrath of God and we are dismayed. And how he lamented that there is no hiding of our sins from God. All our sins are exposed before God who is all-knowing. So my friends, there can be no peace in our souls. There can be no dying well without Jesus. Without having experienced that forgiveness of sins that come through faith in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, who paid the penalty for our sins, who satisfied God's wrath for our sins. So if you have not sought forgiveness, do it today. Don't wait. And let me just lead you in a very, very simple prayer to seek the forgiveness of God for your life. Heavenly Father, I thank you for bringing me here this morning and for listening to your words. Thank you that Jesus has died for my sins. And thank you that I can be forgiven of all my sins. And Lord, I ask you now, in Jesus' name, to forgive my sins so that I can begin that relationship of love with you, so that I can make those steps back home to you, to your heart of love, so that I can begin to respond to your love by serving you wholeheartedly, and so that you can respond by demonstrating your power, your glory, and your love to me, and lead me right into your heart of love. That's where I want to be, Lord. That's where I want to make my home for eternity. In Jesus' name, I pray. If you have prayed that prayer and asked God to forgive you, let know somebody who has brought you so that we can help you develop this relationship and help you grow in this love relationship with God. I want to close us now and I want to pray for all of us that we would live for what truly matters, that we will find peace in our souls, in our hearts, in our spirits, that, we, that this, what we are engaging in, what we are doing in our lives is what God wants us to be. Because unless God builds the house, we build in vain. Unless God watches over the city, we watch we stand watch in vain. Unless our work is aligned to God's purposes for our lives, we work in vain. So I want to pray for all of us that we will continue, that God will continue to speak to you and that you will have the courage to make the necessary change, to make the necessary transformation of where you are to where God wants you to be if God creates this turmoil in your own heart and in your own soul with regards to alignment to His purposes for your life. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we pray with Moses, O oh God, indeed, that You will show Your work to us. You will show Your glory and Your power at work in our lives so that, Lord, 
we can experience your love in a deeper way so that we can see your power at work in our lives, so that we can be drawn deeper and deeper into this love relationship with you. And I pray for all these young people who are here this morning, Lord. I want to pray that in the days ahead, as they continue to seek you for their lives, vocation, as they seek you, Lord, for that call, for your call upon their lives, that it will be clear, it will be direct. And I pray, God, that you will reveal to them your heart and what work you have in store for them, given the gifts, the circumstances, the expertise that you have put in their lives. And I pray that you will align their lives to your purposes. So speak to them, Lord. Make it clear to them. Help them, give them strength and grace to commit their lives fully to you, to live for what truly matters. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless. And if you have something that you want to continue to pray with us, uh, the altar is open. Uh, please feel free to come forward and I can I'll be happy and Chi Ming be happy to pray with you as well.